0: Right. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you all for coming on this rather cold and wintry day. Uh, My name's Toby Dodge. I'm the Interim Director of the Middle East Centre, but I'm also helping organise the Kuwait programme's series of lectures, under which uh, my old friend has been invited. Uh, Anoushya Tashami will speak for about 35 to 45, maybe 50 minutes, and then I'll start to look grumpy, and then there'll be questions and answers. There are four reasons why I was especially keen to get Anoushya to come and address an LSE audience this evening. Uh, Firstly, I think it's not hyperbole. It's very honest to say that he's one of the world's leading experts on both Iranian politics and Iranian foreign policy. He has traced it from his PhD onwards, from his position in Exeter through to his professorship in Durham, and I think his books show not only a focus on comparative politics but also international relations and the twists and turns of the post revolutionary evolution of the Iranian state. Secondly, and he doesn't know this, when I was a young grad student, I saw him give a lecture at SOAS, and I thought what he did was incredibly um, uh, honest but also a wonderful way to lecture, that he built the framework within which he was lecturing as he was lecturing, and I have modelled my own lecturing style on this ever since. Thirdly, and rather incidentally, he's an old friend, and I wanted to see him in London. But fourthly, and most importantly... We knew, of course, uh, us at the Kuwait Programme, the Middle East Centre, that there would be a deal in Geneva. And so we pre-positioned Anoush to come and tell us all about it once it became public knowledge. So I think Anoush's presence here is both testament to his expertise as an Iran watcher, his brilliance as a lecturer, but our strategic vision for timing this lecture. Without further ado, Anoush Atishan. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Toby. Uh, I stand here because he can't then reach me uh, without appearing offensive and I'm sure he doesn't want to do that at all. Um, When when I was asked to come and speak, uh, naturally I accepted uh, without hesitation for four reasons. Because Toby is a dear friend and it's always nice to have the opportunity to catch up with him, to see him. Secondly, because I regard this to be one of the most important audiences and venues for such engagement, so naturally I would have said yes. Uh, thirdly, because the subject in principle was very interesting, and fourthly, because I also spoke to Foreign Minister Zarif and I told him, look, for Toby's sake, please make sure that, that you get a deal so that he can he can brag about it. <laughs> when, I, when I speak in London on the 27th, I'm really delighted here, blood. <laughs> so, um, Iran's foreign policy after the election of Hassan Rouhani. Um, to refer to the tourists, we had this subject cooked up some time ago. In fact, very soon after the result of the election was becoming apparent. Um, and we thought people would look at the domestic stuff, let's look at the foreign policy stuff. At the time we had no idea how quickly the foreign policy becomes become such a driver of, of change as we have now. So what I'm going to do is spend the next hour or so talking to you about, <laughs> uh, about the, the wider context of Iranian foreign policy. Not, I'm not saying foreign policy making, I'm not saying foreign policy process, I'm saying Iranian foreign policy. And look at how if it has changed since uh, President Rouhani's election. And to do that, as Tommy rightly notes, I need to set a structure for what I want to to put across. So the first important thing for me is to explain the context of where all of this is coming from and where it's going. And for me, the, the starting point is in the domestic domain. So I'll build up my discussion from there. I will talk about the domestic context in the political uh, arena. Then I'll develop and talk about the domestic context in a wider socio-economic area. Then I kind of go outside and look at the region as it is and how that may be impacting um, Iran. And only then will I then begin to look at, at, at Rouhani um, and what the priorities might be. I mean, it's very easy to say now, but, you know, it's always relations with the West... He's done it so we can all pack up and go home. And if we do that, actually, I know we have time for dinner as well. (laughs) Uh, uh, That's an inside joke. Otherwise, I won't have time for dinner. I've got to get back and catch my train uh, up to Durham. So let's begin with the domestic uh, context and look at the political dimension. Do elections matter? Well, clearly, what we've seen from what has happened is, yes, they do. Uh, They're very important. They provide evidence for looking at the electoral process for all its limitations and conditionalities and and so on, uh, no longer as an ideological imperative, but also it's become, dare I say, a bit more Americanized, it's a bit more personal, it's a bit more circumstantial that seems to make things happen. We've seen this before, public sentiment, which drove... Uh, Khatami to the presidency in 1997, we saw it again in 2005, the same public push that took Ahmadinejad uh, to the seat, and we saw it again in June uh, in support of uh, uh, Dr Rouhani and the political ground shifted very quickly in all three uh, elections once we knew who was the final victor agendas began to shape and form around them. but in this instance though, there was another struggle going on and that's between the leader and the urban voters, let's put him as generally as that. In supporting Rouhani, it seems to me, voters wanted to send a very strong message to the leader that they were really fed up with the policies implemented the previous eight years, of which he was, in fact, the main backer. Uh, the leader had been out on numerous occasions, particularly in 2009, saying, Amin is my boy. The voters, I think, had wanted to make it very clear. And... And, and that is apparent because if you put Rouhani on one side, there is a whole gamut of very grey men, uh, present company accepted, standing there, uh, who were grey in their politics, grey in their outlook, and grey in, 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 in their appeal as well. Rouhani stood out from that crowd. It's clear that you know, the leader's hand was those grey men around him. And here is this man who comes, apparently out of nowhere, uh, and, he, and he rushes uh, on the eve of the 9th of June, if you look at the opinion polls, the morning of the 10th, he's won it, yeah uh, it's between him and Balibab and then something happens, well uh, actually quite a lot of things happen, which then assures him uh, victory so this was if you like, a a, a note of the, the, the ground shifting in terms of where the leaders stood and where the electorate stood. But his victory also represented the defeat of the most peripheral groups in the Iranian political spectrum. While the conservatives are there, and again, they were represented right across the board in the electoral process, nevertheless, they've been marginalized quite substantially. But equally remarkably, what we've seen is the almost decimation of the new conservative camp that I spent a hell of a long time researching and writing a book about, that disappeared like rain in the desert. Uh, they, 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 they haven't got the political footprint as we speak. They may resurface in a different configuration, but as it stands, eight years of changing, of structuring the regime and the system seems to more or less dissipated uh, overnight with Rouhani's uh, election. And what Rouhani's election demonstrates is the success of a new coalition of forces from the ranks of Iran's highly factionalized political system. A coalition that is more reformist and less than conservative. It's, it's neither this nor the other, but it seems to be a mix of both. Is that a strength or a weakness? Maybe we can, we can tease that one out. Uh, in due course when we begin to look at the practicalities of foreign policy furthermore Rouhani's government is legitimate it has legitimacy and it has the force of the ballot box behind it this is very important that we tend to overlook in the West We, we tend to assume the leader has all the cards maybe he does but what is also important is that the president and his cabinet have the backing of the electorate he won against all expectations in the first round. He, he won with a fairly substantial mandate of a very high water turnout, and that gives him authority, but also, equally importantly, room for manoeuvre in these very difficult currents that, that he is finding himself in. So, to quote Foreign Minister Zarek, for example, he said to Shah just recently, in our recent presidential election, which was a proud manifestation of the ability of the Islamic model of democracy To bring about change through the ballot box, my government received a strong popular mandate to engage in constructive interaction with the world, and particularly with our neighbours. We are dedicated to making use of this mandate to instigate change for the better. I mean, this is unrevocable. You know, it's very clear that that mandate is what gives us legitimacy, authority, and ability to pursue the policies that we are doing. That, in a sense, explains why the Conservatives are somewhat silent on what is going going on here. But, having said that, I think the government is going to find it very difficult to unpick the securitized, dare I say, the proto-Saharan state that had put in place the previous eight years. But, as as the saying goes, so far, so good. Also domestically, if you look at the, now, the socio-economic and economic context, you really cannot overplay this one as an important driver of policy uh, making in Iran. And here, sadly, I've got a long list of things to bore you with in terms of data and figures. Uh, But bear with me because I think they they do tell their own very strong story about why Iran is changing. First, Iran's oil exports in 2012 may have averaged no more than 1.5 million barrels of oil a day. This is well below 2.5 million barrels of oil a day that Iran intended to produce in its annual uh, calculations. The IEA calculated that uh, in its March 2003 oil market report, that Iran's maximum sustainable crude production capacity had dropped by 700,000 barrels of oil a day since December 2011. I mean, this is not peanuts. These are substantial, substantial degradation of Iran's ability to generate cash to keep its, its, its economy going. Uh, data released in January of this year shows that sales had declined by as much as 40% in 2012 uh, and therefore budget projections had to be cut back quite substantially. So much so that even the current government has not yet agreed what it can afford to spend and what it needs to cut. I mean this is a substantial crisis that they are facing. Projections for all exports this year are for between 900,000 to 1.3 million barrels of oil a day, which does mean a cat- catastrophic drop in exports in more than two years. That dropped uh, from 4 million barrels of oil a day in 2010 to just over 2 million barrels of oil a day in 2011. The context, though, is very important when you put this in a, in a slightly broader uh, 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 framework, and that is... Ahmadinejad's presidency from 2005 to 2012, his entire eight years, generated $644 billion in oil revenue. <coughs> that is the highest amount of money Iran has ever had from oil exports since 1909. Right? In eight years, he generated as much as Iran had done the previous hundred years. Where did he go? But to put it slightly more Contractuously, in terms of his predecessor, Khatami's uh, income from oil from 1997 to 2005, his eight years, was mere $157 billion. And in that time, he managed to save over $20 billion for future investments. It it, it shows you the the magnitude of the crisis that that Iran was facing. and, and, and things got even worse when the European Union decided to withdraw ship insurance uh, to Iran in, t- in 2012. That meant that 95% of supertankers which were covering uh, EU companies could no longer load Iran and crude without risk. Iran had to put what were really scarce resources already to compensate for the loss of access to super tankers. And in fact it had to go as far as ordering its own tankers. It ordered twelve of them uh, last year. And that alone cost it one point two billion dollars without a drop of oil being exported in the first place. Fourthly, there was the loss of SWIFT. SWIFT, the international system from transferring funds, we all use it, companies use it, states use it, is the way that we communicate financially globally. The loss of SWIFT to Iran was like taking it from the the nerve center completely. It was to deprive Iran of the ability to conduct business outside of its borders. Hence, billions and billions of dollars are kept in in screw accounts outside because Iran simply cannot access them. But also, because it had no money, it had to go back to the archaic system of barters. You take our oil, we'll give you plastic cups instead, for example. But the problem with that, though, is that it diminishes the quality of facilities, of goods and services on offer to Iranians. So even Chinese academics themselves and Chinese companies have acknowledged that there has been such a strong backlash against the the lesser than best quality going into Iran from China that they need to think about improving the image after the debacle of Iran importing anything that it could Substandard from China and other places in in Asia. So it's not just the loss of SWIFT, but also what substituted Iran, uh, what Iran substituted for SWIFT. So food, medicine, everything was suddenly a degree or so below what the population was expecting. Fifth, sanctions have virtually crushed Iran's already weak currency. Again, let's put it in in, in some context. The currencies collapse. uh, for example, a um, dollar in 2005 was worth 872 months. I mean it can be 870 carats, don't worry about the unit uh, here. By 2013, a <coughs> dollar, uh, you needed 3,202 months to buy one dollar, okay? And most things are measured uh, in, in, in dollars. So average wage of a million two months, which isn't a much, much, uh, was worth $1,100 in 2005, was reduced to no more than $300 in 2013. Purchasing power had been completely crushed uh, as a consequence of Iran's weakening currency. Add to this the effects of inflation, and the erosion of real income, as I've said, and then you will find that actually the Iranian population's purchasing power had dropped by 72% between 2005 and 2013. Put that again in the context of the oil income that accrued between 2005 and 2013, to really appreciate the dynamics, uh, the dimensions of the crisis that Iran's economy is facing. But beyond oil, we've got other problems. Uh, The state has very few options beyond oil because 60% of the population doesn't pay direct taxes. The shadow economy is now accounting for 20% of the GDP of the country. So if the GDP is $400 400 billion, 20% of it is unaccounted for. Huge amount that the central government has virtually no control over. Then there are other demands on Iran. The nuclear program is very, very expensive. It needs $150 billion, a minimum price tag, for new investment in the oil infrastructure, even if to sustain its current oil exports. It needs uh, investments for supporting its allies, $1 billion a month going to to, to Syria and to Hezbollah for staying in there. And we know that in January 2012, Iran may have transferred as much as $10 billion dollars of its precious reserves to Syria to keep the regime uh, going. These are big-ticket expenditures for a country that can't afford them. So, things at home were not exactly rosy in the run-up to the presidential elections. But to look beyond it, let's look at the region and where Iran was sitting uh, in terms of changes beyond its borders. Clearly, the Islamic Republic is increasingly exposed to the seismic shifts which are taking place at the regional level. And it is obviously also less able to manage or control even the forces at play. Iran's national economic situation has worsened just as it's become more vulnerable externally as well. This also is unprecedented, where these two curves cross at about the same time as they're doing now. Iran is vulnerable sub-regionally, the situation in Bahrain, in Iraq and in Yemen, all of them pose very unique challenges uh, to Iran uh, nor do they help its <coughs> relations with the United Arab Emirates or the kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, it doesn't seem to me to have solutions to how it can rearrange its relationship with the three countries mentioned, so as to minimize or to reduce the tensions there between the Emirates uh, and itself, and between Saudi Arabia and itself Thirdly, for all that you hear, I don't believe Iran has made any gains in the Arab Spring. Uh, despite seeing the Arab revolts as a zero sum game between itself and the United States, the Islamic awakening that Atul Khamenei uh, coined for the Arab uprisings has not brought it new allies has not brought it a better geopolitical vantage point either. In fact, as Ellis' own uh, Caterina de la Cora has put in the, in the uh, Financial Times recently, Iran is perceptively, she says, losing the struggle for power in the Middle East. I think there is a, there is a great deal of, of, of truth in what Caterina uh, has articulated in her article. Putting all this aside, then there is Syria. The crisis in Syria challenges Iran's Legitimacy, alliance structures, ideology, and of course, strategic depth, which has been one of its key, 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 key elements of engagement with Syria going back uh, 30 years uh, or more. Iran's role in Syria has increased tensions between Tehran and Riyadh, between Tehran and Ankara, and also, of course, between Tehran and Cairo. Whether Morsi led or the CC right, uh, led. That has not changed the problems Iran faces with these three major regional powers. The danger of spillover of Syrian conflict has grown dramatically since Hezbollah's uh, military presence and involvement in Syria, and Iran could potentially be sucked into sub theatres and domestic affairs of other states Lebanon. Jordan, Iraq, Turkey are all possibilities. Again, look no further than the bomb that went off in Beirut a week ago, and see how it dramatically, directly affected uh, Iran and and, and the the Lebanese uh, polity. It's not just about Hezbollah. Syria exposes Iran to much, much wider currents, all of which are beyond its its control. Also, sectarianism, which is not just about Sunni Shia, it is much deeper, and sadly much wider than that. But nevertheless, Sectarianism, uh, its sharp edge has become, you know, Sunni-Shia relations, unfortunately. And Iran is extremely vulnerable, in my view, to accusations of leading a so-called Shia bloc, to, 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 to use the phrase that King Abdullah of Jordan had used, uh, and seen to be doing so to the detriment of the Sunni-majority uh, Arab world. Tehran, therefore, is today exposed to Arab criticism and abuse as much as Israel and the United States are, again, if you follow the Arab press, uh, you will see the, the abuse which is doled out against Iran is unprecedented. Uh, this is not where the Islamic Republic wants to be in terms of its regional ideology, in terms of its regional role, in terms of how it even perceives itself as a regional actor. Uh, and and this, this is quite a wake-up call uh, for, for Tehran. It has therefore lost much of its legitimacy as a justice-seeking power and is dangerously isolated. Iran's nuclear program, for better or for worse, with or without Geneva, continues to worry neighbors. And it erodes confidence in Iran's offer of compromise. So by June 2013, there was no hiding the fact that Iran was between the rock and the rollback place. President Rouhani, and I'm still on on schedule until So this tells us a little bit about the background, what the voters wanted, right? where was the system going or not going, and what the elite knew and where they were hoping the (coughs) election will will, will take us. And we have then President Rouhani's success, and uh, he was very clear and very forthright in the final debate, which was on foreign affairs, ironically, three-hour-plus debate, absolutely riveting discussion, where he, not just he, but others, totally dismantled Iran's foreign policy for the previous eight years, and put forward this new agenda uh, of compromise and so on. So, let's have a look at where he sits intellectually in terms of interests, and then we can look at some of the foreign policy priorities, that that his government may be following. But first, some fundamentals. The Islamic Republic is a genuinely unique polity. It doesn't quite fit this, or that, or the other for that matter. It is a creation uh, of its own. It's a republic, to be sure, it has a written constitution, and it has all the trappings of, say, the Republic of France has. There is an executive, there is a legislative, There's a judiciary, they're all separate branches, um, constitutionally separate, as well as institutionally uh, separate. Elections for public office are never cancelled, they're routinely uh, observed to take place without (coughs) fail. And the results are public, whether we like it or not, whether there is cheating or not, at least we know what the result is. And it's rarely 99.9%. Which again is very interesting. It seems to be much, much broader than much uh, uh, against the criticism that Iran seems to generate, certainly in Washington circles. All that well and good. Yet, candidacy for office is tightly controlled. The leader has vast constitutionally given powers. He doesn't invent these powers, guys. They are written in the constitution. He's got tremendous powers, but of course he's been able to accumulate some more uh, in the process uh, as well. The country is faction-ridden, and the body body politic is divided along ideological, personal, marriage, all sorts of uh, factors and vectors cut it in in, in different ways. There is thus a multiplicity of centres of decision-making, but also ultimately power. Power is visible but it's also opaque in the Islamic Republic. And this is another of its unique features. Uh, that's why it's a bit like uh, reading tea leaves or looking into a crystal ball. Secondly, there exists a real and seemingly irreconcilable tension at the heart of this system. And, and the tension is not just in one, in one dimension. It is between, for example, ideology and pragmatism. It is between revolutionism and conformism. Is between globalism and isolationism, is between pluralism and authoritarianism, and it is between exceptionalism and universalism. You can't have it both ways. At some point, you've got to decide which side of these vectors you stand. So long as Iran wants to play all of these games, it is by definition, therefore, opaque and for us from the outside, unable to decipher a very clear strategy. And that is why people are constantly worried about we have, but they could do so and so. It's because none of these are spelt out nor very transparently indicated. And there is good reason for that that I'll come to in due course. Thirdly, the point to note is that foreign policy is made at home, but also it is made for home. Right? It is informed by domestic balance of forces as much as by the conditions of the polity and as we've seen increasingly, the economy. These are the issues that drive Iran's worldview now uh, in the context of all of these other contradictions of ideology uh, and, and, and so on. Fourthly, foreign policy must aim to meet the state's broader interests. And it is these which are now being redefined after eight years of pointless confrontation with the rest of the world. And fifthly, there seems to be an awareness uh, amongst many in the elite in Tehran that Iran may have overreached regionally and made itself unnecessarily vulnerable to external pressures. Again, you're looking for reasons as to why there is a difference. Well, here is one uh, possible example. So, these are caveats that we need to bear in mind before we look at uh, Dr. Hassan Rouhani. What about Rouhani? Well, he's a very interesting person. Uh, He is what I call establishment rebel. Why? He was at the heart of the regime from its inception. He was, for example, secretary and representative of the Supreme Defense Council between 1983 and 1988 at the height of the iran Rock War. He was commander of Iranian air defenses between 1985 and 1991. He was deputy commander of Iran's armed forces at the final year of the war. Uh, in 1988-89, he was National Security Advisor to President Khatami between, oh, uh, between 1989 and 1997, and then became Secretary of the Supreme National Security Council during uh, Khatami's presidency. Um, he was an MP. He was Deputy Speaker of the Parliament. He has sat on the Parliament Affairs Committee. He has chaired the Defence Committee, and so on. He is establishment as it gets. He is no outsider he's very much part and parcel of this system but he is a rebel a, a, um, if that is not a contradiction in terms he's an stu- establishment rebel he's a product of the system he's been part of it his whole life but at the same time he's obviously open minded on both domestic social issues but equally importantly external foreign policy issues he doesn't seem to be driven by ideology, no seem to be suffering the the schizophrenia that the state seems to manifest in so many other areas. As a consequence, therefore, of he and, and his perception of what needs to be done, the talk in Tehran is of building confidence, of trust, of pinpointing areas of common interest, Identifying shared objectives and pursuing common interests with neighbors and international community. These are all direct quotes either from Zarif or from the president uh, himself. The aim, in other words, for, in short, is for detente. We had this before as well, folks, during the Qatami period. Primarily with the West, but most importantly with the United States. The deal is to try and find the modus of Brandi with the United States, or at worst, to find an acceptable and managed system of competition between Tehran and Washington in the region. Tehran has traveled a long way to get to this position. But there are those who think the dialogue, indeed peace with the US, is the prize and the real game-changer as far as Iran is concerned. For it's only that that gives it the opportunity to redefine its role in the region completely. Moving from enmity to empathy, uh, we break taboos, money sold reduce tensions that are damaging Iran and Iran's rule internationally and ultimately unlock the doors to integration to the, in the region that has been locked to Iran since 1979 so the talk is of a radical really transformational uh, change, but there is always a but the perennial questions remain what about the hardliners how much control over foreign affairs does the president really have what about the leader who seems to control everything? Can the Islamic Republic retain its revolutionary values and ideals while the American flag flutters in the Tehran smug? All valid questions, all yet to be explored. But this is where he is heading. This is what he said he is heading. So in this context, what are President Rouhani's foreign policy priorities? And I've got a list that I'm, I'm going to share with you and hopefully we can explore and tease even the issues out in the course of our Q&A. First, prioritizing nuclear negotiations as, as the best way of breaking the lockdown with the national community. And in doing so, for bringing some relief to the beleaguered economy. Hey presto, That is exactly what has happened uh, in Geneva. The plan, as we've seen in Geneva, is to try and improve the economy and also bring some relief to the country's socioeconomic problems through a bold move on the nuclear file try and secure early, early success in order to silence opponents at home, but also, equally importantly, to build popularity uh, popularity in order to be able to take other bold efforts. This is why it was so important that Geneva was successful. Another failure would not have allowed them to push this juggernaut that they're building up forward uh, in, the, in the months ahead. Um, fourthly, in some ways I would argue Rouhani is, in fact, doing the reverse of what President Khatami had done. Uh, Focus on foreign policy to to improve the economy, in his case, rather than as Khatami was trying to do, was to improve the domestic environment in the hope that it will be a precursor to economic improvements. Here, foreign policy is really for home consumption. It's not for an external uh, uh, focus. Having said that, in other foreign policy areas, Iran cannot really have much room for maneuver for example can Iran afford to see Assad fall and his regime fail I would argue no it cannot with his own ally Iraq they cannot fathom an Islamist regime in power in Damascus which is Sunni led first but is close to Saudi Arabia to Turkey or to whomever that is a very important security geopolitical uh, issue for, for Tehran Iraq then looks to Iran to defend what we might actually begin to see as maintaining the integrity of a secular Syria. Now that's rich, isn't it? Here is Iraq, dominated by religious-driven uh, elite itself. Here is Iran, an Islamic Republic, both of them struggling to keep Syria secular for the sake of their national interests. But this is the Middle East. <laughs> Yet, without satisfactorily addressing the Syria crisis, I don't think Iran can expect to make headway uh, in, in the other very difficult regional relationships either. Having shown so-called historic flexibility in the nuclear negotiations, world powers mainly press Iran to do the same over Syria. Will it, as I've said, unlikely. What will they do then? Hiding behind Russia would seem a prudent strategy in this instance, I would have suggested. So, What will be the administration's priorities going forward in the next uh, weeks and months? Let me put on the table six to seven immediate priorities. First, it seems important to Tehran to rebuild ties with Turkey, which were badly shaken after 2009. Second, they will try to rebuild relations with Saudi Arabia and indeed other Arab neighbours, particularly the GCC countries, as a way of reducing this devastating tension between the parties. Thirdly, Iran will want to put distance uh, between itself and the burning fires of the transition Arab countries. This is no longer an Islamic awakening to them, but rather it's a mess that they much rather stay uh, away of rather than intervene. So as as you see, apart from Bahrain, where there seems to be a different game at play, and Syria, in in Egypt, in Tunisia, in in Libya, and I would argue even in Yemen. Iran is deliberately underplaying the role it may or may not have. Fourthly, if it can, it's a big question, this government will try and keep its nose out of the Arab Palestinian theatre as much as possible. Let that be someone else's problem for a while. Uh, Fifth, it will try to recover ground lost in relations with the European Union, a, a real priority, and having Ashton as an ally will be one that they will play as uh, uh, strongly as they can. Sixth, they will try to mend fences with the United Kingdom. It has not served either country's interests, and I think Tehran is very keen, given where they are now in the nu- nuclear negotiations, to restore uh, uh, that relations which, which is positive for everyone. And finally, not to rush to deepen Ahmadinejad's links with the populist regimes of Latin America, if they can help it. Will his administration be successful in these realms? Well, the answer to that really lies, as it has done always in the past, at home. In the balance of forces at home, and the way in which President Rouhani manages to reduce the many institutional, ideological, structural tensions which have come to characterize modern Iran. In this, he'll need the leader as an ally, and Atolla Sanjani as an advocate. Strangely told me, we've been here before more than once. Thank you very much.